October 10th. And on October 10th, 1959, my husband was born. Today is his birthday. And um, obviously, I'm not with him right now to celebrate, but we celebrated on Sunday. We went and had brunch in downtown Portland um, to celebrate his birthday. And it's amazing because downtown Portland, that's only like 10 miles away, but it is a totally different culture down there. I'd forgotten how much I'd become accustomed to living in the little bubble of Lake Oswego and the southern suburbs. Um, it was a completely different culture. We actually had an amazing lunch in a Jewish delicatessen called Kenny and Zooks. And, um, and it was so cool. Just, you know, they have the traditional Jewish menu. And I just want, I was looking around celebrating like this culture there, but also thinking, oh, I wish I could just tell you about Jesus because you only know half the story. <laughs> But in the meantime, it was really a fun way to celebrate. And I was thinking about what a different culture downtown Portland is. And I was thinking about the slogan, of course, that defines our city. What is it? Keep Portland weird, right? And now, of course, that's the unofficial motto of our, of our city. But did you know that that was actually copied from Austin, Texas? Uh, there was a campaign in Austin, Texas called Keep Austin Weird, and then someone decided to bring it to Portland because they thought that um, they actually were using that mantra in order to launch a campaign to support local businesses. So they started this Keep Portland Weird, as in buy locally, and of course it's stuck. <laughs> now it's, it's what we know ourselves that's the weirdness of Portland. But um, it's, So this has been the mantra, this has been the slogan of Portland now since 2003. So I, I was just thinking about this and I was thinking, I just need to do a little bit of research and figure out why exactly do people think that Portland's weird? Like, why has that stuck? And so um, I did a little exploration, uh, did some, some research of my own, and I found out some things that are quite interesting. Do you know that Portland has more tattooed people per capita than anywhere else in the U.S.? <laughs> That's one of the defining characteristics. Do you know that we are, we have the most, we're considered to have the highest number of oddballs per capita if any city? They said crazy people at first, and I, I don't think they meant mentally ill. I think they, they defined it later as being oddballs. Um, there is a universal acceptance in Portland to wear strange clothing and not get judged. That's one of the characteristics. In Portland, you can wear basically as weird a clothing as you want, and no one will judge you. That's one of the characteristics of Portland. I didn't know that. Um, and then we have the highest number of hybrid car owners per capita. Yeah, <laughs> saving the planet. And uh, then there's the eccentricities of our city, like voodoo donuts. Uh, one of the things that marks defining feature of keeping Portland weird. Now, I don't have a picture for this next one, and you will thank me, the naked bike race. <laughs> Another defining feature. Um, then Zoo Bomb. Has anyone heard of Zoo Bomb? Yeah, Brenton has. So Zoo Bomb is a defining feature of Portland's weirdness. So what Zoo Bomb is, apparently adults get on the little tiny kids' bikes, and they go up to the top of the hill where the zoo is, and they bomb down the hill on these little bikes. And they do this, I think, Saturday nights. Is that when they do it? And of course, this is accompanied by a lots of alcohol, as you would imagine. Didn't know that. Did you know also one of our defining features is the horse project? Little tiny horses that are appearing randomly all over town, tied up outside of businesses. See, we're suburb people, aren't we? 
And then we have, of course, the famous unipiper, a man who rides a unicycle, wears a kilt, plays the bagpipe with fire shooting off, and a Star Wars mask. These are, these are why the rest of the world looks at Portland and says, this is a weird place. Do you know also we have a city ukulele association? That was news to me. Do you know that also we, we have the smallest park in the world? <laughs> Mills End Park. It's, I guess it's down on NATO Parkway. And you've heard this one, the most number of strip clubs per capita. What's that say about our city? But then there's a new thing, a new growing trend you may have heard of, speakeasies. So speakeasies are now a new defining feature of Portland. Basically, people are brewing beer in their homes and then serving it without a liquor license in underground locations, just like back in the days of Prohibition. So it's a growing trend. I hung out with a 20-year-old uh, last week at a retreat, and she told me how she and her husband, they, they check out these speakeasies on, on weekend nights in Portland. So now you're up to date on why Portland is so weird. But... I think Portland is a lot like ancient Ephesus. I think ancient Ephesus was pretty weird too. And it was a city that needed to hear the good news of the gospel just as badly as Portland, Lake Oswego, Tualatin, Tigard, Westland, Beaverton needs to hear the good news of the gospel. And so today as we launch into our study of Ephesus, as we talk about our introduction to Ephesians, um, I want us to understand the culture that Paul was living in, the culture that he was speaking into and writing to, and I want us to know how similar our two cultures are, how similar Ephesus was and is to Portland, and the people of Ephesus are really a lot like us. You know, the Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun, there's nothing new under the sun. And we're going to see that the people that lived in, in Ephesus, the Ephesians, were just like us today. And so today we're going to do two things. We're going to examine the man, Paul. Who is Paul? Who is Saul? And we're going to talk about the uh, place Ephesus. So, so if you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to start in Acts chapter 9, and I've got some verses on the screen for you as well. But first, we're going to talk about the man, Saul, who became Paul. In 1885... Francis Thomas wrote a famous poem called The Hound of Heaven. Has anybody heard of that poem or heard that phrase, The Hound of Heaven? This was a poem that he wrote because in his experience, he, he experienced God chasing him down. He was a man who struggled with sort of inner demons. He had homelessness. He, he was full of despair. He had addiction. He had even attempted suicide. And at every turn, his experience was that God was the great hound of heaven who pursued him and wooed him to faith in Christ. And I, when I think of that term hound of heaven, I think about Paul, because Paul was a man who truly experienced the hound of heaven disrupting his life, turning everything around, and revealing the person of Jesus Christ to him and changing him from a man who was named Saul in his Hebrew name to a man who was named Paul in his Greek name. So what do we know about him? What do we know about this guy who became the great Apostle Paul? Well, first of all, we know he was born in Tarsus. Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey. That's where he was born. He's called the Hebrew of Hebrews because he was of Jewish descent. His dad was a Pharisee, a high religious leader, so he was born into a very prestigious family. Um, he was also, though, a Roman citizen because at the time, Tarsus was under Roman rule. So he was a Roman citizen but of Jewish descent. 
He was brilliant. As we will find when we read Ephesians and the other letters that Paul wrote, he had an amazing mind, and he was born in a place where he could receive an outstanding education, was even trained under this famous teacher named Gamaliel. So he was, had the best of circumstances to develop his mind, to develop his writing skills, his communication skills, and to be educated in a way that gained him great respect as he went out to share the gospel later in his life. Um, he was a devoted Pharisee, so he was a devoted religious leader just like his dad was, and um, he was driven by zeal. He's a very passionate guy. He was all in for his faith, and he had this great heart for God, so he believed in the scriptures. He, he had... Um, had had learned the scriptures deeply. He had had the example of his family. He was deeply entrenched in the religious community, the Jewish religious community. He was so passionate for God, but at the time that we begin our our understanding of his life, he was spiritually blind to the person of Jesus Christ. He was convinced that this message of the gospel, this good news that was being spread around about this guy Jesus who had risen from the dead, he was convinced that this was blasphemous. He was convinced that this tainted God's reputation, that this was a lie, and he was convinced that Jesus was a fraud. He did not believe that Jesus had raised from the dead. Surely he knew Jesus had existed and died on a cross, but he didn't believe in the resurrection. And so at this time, he he feared that these new Christians were going to... to, to diffuse the, the Jewish faith. He's, remember that the gospel went first to the Jews. So he's seeing Jewish brothers and sisters come to faith and become Christians. And he is worried that this is going to decimate the Jewish faith. So he is determined to stop it. The church, he believes, is a threat. And his mind, Christ followers, need to be eliminated. And so he is on a path to ruthlessly persecute anyone who professes faith in Christ. So looking at Acts 9, let's open and see how this begins. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way being the followers of Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's intent upon discovering who are these Christ followers capturing them, persecuting them. And yet God, we know, has other plans for Saul because actually, ironically, rather than being able to exterminate them, though he has murdered some already, God is going to arrest him and actually make him to be like the very people he hates and be one of the greatest proclaimers of the gospel the world has ever known. Just like God, to turn his world completely upside down. Verse 3 says, so now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine, just imagine for a moment what it would be like to be so convinced that you are defending the honor of God, that you are killing people. You know, he was at the stoning of Stephen, one of the first apostles to die. To, be, to know that you're killing, you think you're doing it for all the right reasons, and you're on the road to go get more Christians to kill. 
and all of a sudden you're disrupted by a bright light, you're completely blinded, and you hear the voice of God speaking to you. Why are you persecuting me? And do you notice how Jesus calls him by his name, Saul? And in that moment, all of Saul's sins are brought to light. Why are you persecuting me? Saul would have known in that moment, he's murdered, he's persecuted, he's tortured, he's captured, he's ripped families apart. He would in that moment, by the physical light shining on him, also have the light of his heart exposed to his own sin. Now, Saul never met Jesus. He lived after Jesus had already come and gone on this earth. He'd never met him face to face. But when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He's saying, you're persecuting my children. You're persecuting people who have received me as Savior. These are my people. And when you persecute them, you're persecuting me as well. And so instead of Saul going to arrest believers, God literally arrests Saul in this moment. And I can only imagine what it felt for Saul to realize that Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's heard his voice. He's blinded by him. Saul has fallen to his knees. He's realizing in this moment that he was wrong and the people that he tortured and killed were right. Jesus is alive. Like, he did rise from the dead. This is true. And you can only imagine what was was happening in his heart. You know, he is in this moment of complete humility, humbled, confronted by the risen Lord, literally on his knees, blinded by the presence of God, and exposed as a sinner. But the Lord had a calling and a purpose for his life. I love that Jesus didn't leave him there. He didn't say, why are you doing this, and then walk away. He said, but rise. I have a purpose and a calling for your life. I have revealed myself to you so that you can know me You can know yourself before me, and you have a purpose for your life. This moment is significant for you. He says, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And it says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drink. Can you imagine the radical transformation that's happening in Paul's world right now? Everything is upside down. Everything he thought was true is not true. He is the proud Pharisee, the leader, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the educated one. He's being led by the hand into the city. He can't even see, can't walk, he can't find his way. He is completely and profoundly humbled. Paul, everything he believed about God and about himself has changed. His physical eyes are going to remain closed until his spiritual eyes are opened, which will take about three days. Now, meanwhile, God is preparing for Paul to meet someone when he gets into town. He is preparing for him to meet a man named Ananias. And so he speaks about that in verse 10. He says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord had said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, here I am. I love that. Don't you wish that every time God called your name, you said, here I am, instead of, what do you want? (laughs) Not again. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay 
his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, everybody had heard about Saul. Everybody. People knew Saul was a dangerous man. People were hiding from him and fleeing out of his presence. They knew that when Saul came to town, if you were a Christian, you better hide. So Ananias, being a disciple, being a follower of Christ, knows, are you kidding me? This guy is dangerous. We've all heard of his reputation. And he felt so frightened by this news. So Ananias answers the Lord and says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias is legitimately scared. He is frightened. And I love the fact that even though he still remains frightened, he goes. He's faithful. He obeys. Have you ever felt so frightened to do something and known still that the Lord was calling you to step out in faith, to do it anyway? I mean, so often I think we think that when we're stepping into scary places that we have to feel peace first. We have to feel calm. We have to, to have a change of perspective. But sometimes we just have to step out scared. And that's what Ananias does. He just steps out. And Ananias, it says, departed and entered the house and laid his hands on him. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Wow. Paul was so dramatically changed by this encounter with Jesus. He had this, he had, had, he had seen the risen Lord and nothing in his life would ever be the same. And it's interesting that when the, the Holy Spirit comes into Saul, the scales not only fall off his physical eyes, wouldn't that be amazing? What was that like to have like scales fall off your eyes? Not only did that happen physically, but at the same time, the scales were falling off his hard heart and he was able to see with his heart the Lord Jesus, not just with his eyes. And then, I love it says that he went and got baptized before he ate food and strengthened himself. Now, Baptism was what the new believers did to publicly pro proclaim faith in Christ. So here is the guy who's been killing Christians, persecuting them, and now he is going out in public for all to see and being baptized in the name of Jesus. Can you imagine the humble heart that took for him to do that? Or the controversy that would have erupted as people who see him being baptized, what they would have thought about him. How radically countercultural it was for a Pharisee and a Jewish zealot to being baptized in the name of Christ. That would have been shocking if we were there on the streets watching. And that's the truth that I think we can take from Paul's life. And that is that encountering the person of Jesus Christ will change your heart. Encountering the person of Jesus Christ will change your heart. Change is actually possible with anyone who comes in contact with Christ, even someone as hard-hearted as Paul. The hound of heaven was after Paul. The hound of heaven was after 
Thomas Francis, Francis Thomas, the hound of heaven has been after me in my life. Have you ever experienced the hound of heaven after you? Where it's undeniable that God is, is chasing you down. I remember, though I believed in the triune God from a, a young age, I remember the age of five praying and, and knowing that God was with me and trying to figure out who was this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though I knew God and I had great faith in him and I, I believed in his existence, I didn't, I didn't know his word. There's so much about him I didn't know. I, I didn't grow up in a church that taught the Bible very clearly. I knew the big stories. As Rhonda shared last week, I knew all the big stories, but I didn't know how any of that made sense for me growing up just, you know, for my personal life. I didn't know how relevant it was for me, and I didn't really understand it. And so when I was growing up, I just took cues from the world how to live my life. Music was really influential, friends. And I grew up in the 60s and 70s where there was a lot about freedom and independence and self-sufficiency, and especially if you were a woman, you got a lot of those messages coming through the culture in that time. And so as I went into college, I lived my life based on the world's values. I believed and I knew God, but I just didn't have anything to hold on to, to speak into my life. And I kind of felt like I could do a better job leading, running my own life than God could anyway, because it seemed to me like God wasn't as fun as I was. And so I spent most of my college just having a lot of fun and, and living my life in my own way, but the Lord was chasing after me even then. He put Christian roommates in my life. He put Christian friends in my life. Amy Grant, anybody remember Amy Grant? My goodness, the words of Amy Grant just sung to my soul and, and revealed to me so much about who God is and how much he loved me. And so God was the hound of heaven. He was chasing me down. And then, truly, I got to the end of myself. I got to the end of my decisions and my choices, and I found nothing but emptiness and loneliness and disappointment. And it was at the end of college where I finally said, Uncle, Lord, I'm yours. I, I feel like you have a much better plan for my life than I do. I feel like your rulership of me is better than my rulership of me. I felt like God had a design for me that was full of potential. And I couldn't even imagine what he had for me at the time. But I just knew that I wanted him to be the one to lead me forward out of college and into life and not do it myself. I wasn't so good at it. And of course, we know that we can't really change by our own efforts. You know, we do. We participate with God in changing. But it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that comes in to every believer who believes in Jesus and, and what's, we call it being born again. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us rebirth, that changes our hearts, that gives us a new perspective about our lives and about who God is. And, and that's what it means to be made spiritually alive in God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Does that describe you? Have you encountered the risen Christ? Has he changed your heart? Has he changed your perspectives? Has he given you um, a new life as you have allowed the Holy Spirit to enter you because you've believed and received Christ and, and changed the course of, of your life? Have you allowed his light to shine on the reality of who you are as a broken, sinful person? and someone who's desperately in need of God's grace. I just think about how much that God loved Saul. I mean, from God's perspective, Saul loved God. He thought he was on the right path. 
He was defending God's honor, and God loved Saul so much that he arrested him and changed everything and revealed himself to him. And that's such a picture of what happens to us when we confront the risen Christ. You know, we're on our way, right? We think we've got our lives under control, and we're, we're living our lives, but we're moving away from God. We're making our own decisions. We're leading our lives in our own independence, freedom, self-sufficiency, and then some, at some point, we become aware of the fact that we're sinful people, that we're not meeting up to God's holy standards, that God is calling us, but we're ignoring him. And when we have an encounter with the risen Christ, whether it be through the gospel or a friend or the prayers of a loved one or a sermon or a Bible study or whatever it is, when we are confronted with the reality of the risen living Christ and we turn back to him, we're actually repenting of this life. We're actually saying, I don't want this life anymore. And we turn towards Christ. And when we do that, we come to realize that not only does he invite us into relationship with him, but he has actually died to set us free from the bondage of sin and death, that his death on a cross as a perfect sinless person welcomes us into an eternal life with him because it covers the penalty of sin, which is death, and brings us into a relationship with him where we have a new heart. We get the gift of the Holy Spirit. We live anew with him, and we begin to have a completely different trajectory for our lives, which is walking towards him, growing Repenting, praying, changing, learning, growing, loving, serving. It's a completely different path in life. Have you experienced that? That's what happens when we are confronted with the, the reality of the risen Lord. Have you experienced that? I have, um, I have a sheet that I gave to your leaders today, and it's, it's just about how to know that you've received Christ as your Savior. As we're embarking on this deep and rich study of Ephesians, Knowing Jesus is the best place to start. It will make so much more sense if you know that you are in a relationship with him, that you are filled with his spirit and able to see him as he is. Well, let's talk about the place of Ephesus. Paul took this good news. Paul had good news to share. He had seen the risen Christ. He had been radically transformed. He has a new name now. And he literally takes this good news to the end of the known world. He had three missionary journeys when he was in his time of ministry. And he encountered during that time all kinds of trials and sufferings along the way. He had been traveling to place to place and through Asia Minor. And then he ended up in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And he talks about that in Acts 19. And so turn now to Acts 19, and I'll tell you what happened when he was in Ephesus. First of all, as I said, Ephesus was in the Roman province of Asia. It was a big commercial trading center. It was near the water. There were about 300,000 people who lived there. It was a very prosperous city. Think Lake Oswego. Lake Oswego on the water with a harbor. That's what Ephesus was like. Um, it, had, it was a tourist center as well because it was known for the Temple of Diana, which is where, or Artemis, and this is where people would come to see this amazing structure and where they would come and worship her. It, actually, the Temple of Diana was one of the, the one, seven wonders of the ancient world, so it was a very, very you know, popular place to come and visit. And it was the place where they worshipped this Greek goddess. She was known as the goddess of fertility and nature and hunting, 
So when Paul was in Ephesus, this temple was already about 400 years old. So it was already kind of an ancient temple when he was there. It was already a place of, of, of great um, attraction. And um, there were 100 columns in this temple, and the temple was over 50 feet high. So you can imagine, this was a huge, huge landmark in Ephesus. And at one point, there was a meteor, apparently, that had fallen from heaven, and they worshipped this meteor as being the goddess of Diana or Artemis. And so this meteor was inside the temple, and it's what people came to worship. And they would, of course, buy all kinds of little idols at the time as well. She was the goddess of fertility. So one of the ways that people would go and worship her is by going to the temple and meeting with temple prostitutes. And that's how they worshiped her, through prostitution. So for over two years, Paul is in the city of Ephesus, and as Paul always did, he loved to go first and preach in the synagogues. He always believed the gospel was first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. So he went to a local synagogue in Ephesus, and he preached there for about three months, and then the Jews became obstinate against him, and they kicked him out. So then he went to a hall called the Hall of Tyrannus, and there he preached for another two years, which was amazing. He was undisturbed for two years preaching the gospel. Now, the Ephesians had this really interesting lifestyle. It's not unlike how the Greeks live, still live today. Um, if you've been to Greece, it, they have this really interesting rhythm in their lives. So they would get up really early in the morning, and from you know, sunrise to 11, they would work at their trade. From 11 to 4, they would then take a break, hot afternoon sun, you can imagine, kind of taking the siesta time. They would go to these local gymnasiums, they would call them, but really they were like bathhouses. And they would go to these large um, gymnasium-style bathhouses where they would have public baths together, but then they would also um, just enjoy leisure, and they would eat, and they would hang out with friends, and they would exercise, or they would sleep, but then they also would listen to someone teaching. So there would also be these, these halls or these gathering places where people would like to hear each other teach during this time. And so that's why Paul got this, this place called Tyrannus, the Hall of Tyrannus. It's so interesting because Paul knew how to bring the good news of the gospel right to their culture. He knew exactly how to bring it to the places where they gathered and how to speak in the same way that they spoke. Because remember, this is a, a highly philosophical culture. They loved the teachings of Socrates. They loved talking about philosophy. And in the model after Socrates where people would ask questions and then dis debate and dispute and then discuss the answers. That's how their culture was. So that's what Paul does there. You know, he brings out questions for debating and discussing, and he's, he's there just engaging with them until about four. And then at four, everyone went back to work. So Paul was a tent maker. He would go back to work for the rest of the day. And then at night, he would go into people's homes, and he would minister as a shepherd. He would listen to their brokenness. He would pray for them. He would weep with them. He would plead with them to believe in Jesus. He had an amazing life in this culture as a missionary. Now, um, in Acts 19.10, it said this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Can you imagine 
all the residents of this area hearing the word of the Lord, you just think about this is good news and people are telling their friends and telling their friends and telling their friends and it's spreading. And in fact, during that two-year period of time, seven churches were um, established in that area. So the good news was spreading and people were gathering together to worship. And Paul was filled with such power of the Holy Spirit to preach. It says that he did extraordinary works during that time where people, it says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out. Amazing. There was so much witchcraft and demon worship and astrology and superstition that God gave Paul special powers, special miraculous abilities so that people would know that, that God was more victorious and powerful than Satan. And so that was a special um, ability that God gave to Paul to discredit the work of Satan in that place. But then in verse 13, it says that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. It was not unusual for Jewish priests to try to cast demons out of people. Remember, this is a very dark culture. It wasn't unusual, but what was unusual was for someone to try to do it invoking the name of Jesus, since they didn't even know Jesus. So they used the name of Paul, but that didn't work because it says the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Amazing. There was so much that was happening in the occult. And in verse 17, but, this, but God used this for his glory because though this was happening, people recognized that when the gospel came in, there was a power there that was stronger than the power of the evil that existed in their city. And even believers who had been caught up in some of these occult practices were repenting, were throwing their idols into the fire, were burning their, their instruments of witchcraft, and they were coming to faith and trust in Christ and giving their lives over to them. So verses 17 through 20, I won't actually read those for you. You can go back and see, but this is what was happening. But then Satan attacked again. And this time, it was one of the most painful experiences of Paul's life, which he writes about on several occasions. What happened now was that a riot broke out in the city. So many people were giving their lives to Jesus. So many people were repenting of their, of their demonic practices and their idol worship. So many people were changed by Paul's ministry. And so guess what? They weren't buying the idols anymore. The silversmiths were losing money. This was their trade. Remember, this was a tourist attraction. People came from all over. I was thinking this morning, it's like taking Disneyland out of Anaheim. You know, no more Mickey Mouse pancakes. I mean, everything that was in that community was associated around this worship of Diana. And this was their whole economy. And so the silversmiths were really agitated. And a riot broke out in the city. This is what the idols look like. So they staged a riot in protest of Paul's ministry. And soon the mobs of people were shouting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And Paul speaks of this in Corinthians. He says, I fought the beasts in Ephesus. This was a time of such great suffering for him. This riot somehow really profoundly affected him, probably body, mind, and spirit. 
In fact, at the end of 2 Timothy, in his last letter, he talks about this painful opposition that he encountered in Ephesus at the hands of Alexander the metalworker, who was one of the idol manufacturers. And he was the instigator of that riot. He says in 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. It was a time, it was a place of great suffering, and yet Paul persevered in his love for the people and his love for Jesus and his message of good news. And I just think Ephesus was a weird city. It was weird. It was full of all kinds of strange things, just like Portland is. I was thinking of all the protests and riots that we've had in this last year in Portland. You know, things that started off maybe as peaceful protests, but there's this mob mentality that happens. There's this frenzy where people start hurting people that they're not even mad at, smashing snore windows and hurting police officers and, and, and cars and all the things that, that happened in downtown Portland. For There was almost, it attracts all the angriest people just to come and sort of be unleashed in their anger. It's scary. And... You know, in Portland, we live in a place, I think like Ephesus, that values independence and individualism and freedom. We call, you know, Keep Portland Weird. They probably called Ephesus Keep Ephesus Weird, if they did in that day have slogans. But I think about what does that mean? I think, I think what we really are saying when we say Keep Portland Weird is we're saying don't infringe on our personal expression of our core belief which is that everyone can just do what's right in their own eyes. I think it was like that in Ephesus too. And so Paul's message is radically countercultural to the Ephesians, and it's radically countercultural to us. And whether we're in Lake Oswego or Westland or Tigard or Beaverton or wherever we are, this is a radically countercultural message in 2017. But it was radically countercultural then too. Because the message is this Jesus is alive. He's alive. He is the living Lord. He is presently at the right hand of the Father. He has given us his Holy Spirit, who is alive in each person who believes and receives him as Savior. And his word is alive. It's a living word. When we open the word of God, it speaks to us right here and now in whatever we're going through in our lives. It's not an ancient book about a land and time far away. It is, it is God's living word to us. It's alive. And it... In 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, it says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that's the truth that I want us to walk away from today, is that the truth of God's word remains forever. Forever. I think about the city of Ephesus today. You know what's left of that temple of Diana? Show it, Adam. That's it. One column. That's all that's left. Do you know what... People worship today in Ephesus? Not Diana. <laughs> they don't worship Diana anymore. She's long forgotten. Nobody has those silver idols anymore except in maybe a museum. But the gospel that was preached in Ephesus still remains. While Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians. They still remain. The truth of God's word lives on because the truth of God's word is a living word and it speaks to our hearts and it changes our perspectives. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So my question to you is this. Are you willing to let the word of God speak into your heart to really shake up what you've always thought, to let it shine on your sin, to reveal to you the person of Jesus, to allow it to really speak into you. We're going to go so deep this year into what it really means to be in Christ and what it, who Jesus really is and what he does. It's going to be the deep end of the pool, which we're going to talk more about next week. But are you ready to open the word and ask the Spirit to shine light, not only on the truth of God's word, but on the truth of who you are, and be able to trust him, allow him to change you from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, Paul's life is such an example of a changed heart, hard changed heart, surrendered to you and you used him for such great impact in the world. I just get chills when I think about the temple of Diana being in crumbling pieces of rock, but the truth of your word that Paul wrote in Ephesus remains because you are a living God and it's a living word. And I just praise and thank you for all the ways that you've changed my life. Truly the greatest testimony of the reality of who you are is my own changed heart. And I thank you and praise you for that evidence and I ask, Lord, that this year as we open this book together, that you would speak through the pages to us and that we would become more deeply in love with you, more confident of the truth of who you are, and more able to worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.